Welcome to Prison Pipeline, produced at the studios of KBOO Portland. I'm Karen James. The 2023 Oregon Legislature is in session, and my guest is Zach Winston, Policy Director with Oregon Justice Resource Center. We'll talk about their 2023 legislative agenda, which includes the right to vote, compassionate medical release, and justice for survivor defendants. Welcome, Zach. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, Zach, the 2023 Oregon legislative session has begun, and we're off to a quick start. So let's start with Senate Bill 579. Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's definitely off to a fast start, and 579 is probably off to the fastest start of our our bills. And so um, Senate Bill 579 is our Guaranteeing the Right to Vote bill. Chief sponsors are Senator Prasansky, Senator Gelser-Bluen, Senator Dembro, Senator Jama, and Senator Manning Jr., and so Senator Prasansky has introduced the bill for us. And what this bill does, and, and listeners may remember this from prior sessions, this is our third third time around on this bill. It's incredibly important, so we're going to keep bringing it. And I think this session really does have a good shot of, of passing. So we believe at OJRC that all Oregonians should have a say in what happens in their community and a voice in their government. Uh, so the right to vote is enshrined in our constitution, fundamental to a vibrant and participatory democracy. But- Many incarcerated Oregonians are currently denied the right to vote, which leads to low-income, Black, Indigenous, and people of color being disproportionately disenfranchised by the system. And so Oregon, we believe, Oregon must guarantee the right to vote for people impacted by the criminal legal system. Essentially what SB 579 would do, and SB is shorthand for Senate bill, it will ensure that every incarcerated Oregonian who is a U.S. citizen can register to vote update their voter registration, and vote in elections based on where they resided prior to their incarceration. Uh, And that's an important piece and happy to go into that uh, more. But that's that's kind of the basic of the bill. It'll also ensure that adults in custody receive the same voter information that we receive in the general community. So voter pamphlets, for example, would go to adults in custody so they can cast informed votes. And so we believe that guaranteeing the right to vote addresses significant racial inequities, uh, fulfills the promise of our democracy, and it actually does improve public safety and community well-being for everyone. And so I think the exciting news on this is uh, we received a public hearing on January 26th uh, in the Senate Judiciary, and uh, we had over 150 written comments in support of the bill, uh, which is just an astonishing number, especially on such short notice. And we have a work session that has been scheduled, uh, and we'll see where that goes. But we're hoping to have the bill passed out of Senate Judiciary. So you say it improves public safety. And there's also a claim that it reduces or lowers the rates of recidivism. How so? I mean, we know that 95% of people in prison, roughly, uh, will be returning to their communities. And we know that study after study has shown that successful reentry greatly reduces the likelihood of people returning to prison. And so that includes ensuring people can become engaged and active in their communities. And so that's what this bill does. Guaranteeing the right to vote keeps people involved, adults in custody involved while they're in prison and keeps them involved with their communities and therefore makes our communities safer because they stand a better chance of reentering successfully if they stay connected to their community. And that's why it's so important that the voting registration address is the last voluntary address. And so that hopefully ensures that the individual can stay connected with their community. And I think the important piece here is um, I'm formerly incarcerated myself, but also our entire policy team is formerly incarcerated at the Oregon Justice Resource Center. And we actually have about, I think, 25 percent of our staff right now are formerly incarcerated. And so I think when uh, it's a really good group to get together and talk about how we believe this bill will impact the formerly and currently incarcerated population. And I think there is an overwhelming belief 
and just knowledge that the more you isolate individuals while they're incarcerated, the worse they're going to do upon reentry, the worse they're going to do inside, you know, while they're incarcerated, but also when they're trying to reenter successfully. And so I think that we understand that keeping people engaged while they're incarcerated, allowing them to vote, keeping them connected to their communities, voting in, for example, school board races, right? People who are incarcerated still have family who are not incarcerated, uh, who are living in their communities. You know, a parent should have the ability to vote in a school board election that will impact their their child. And so we do believe that this will uh, reduce recidivism. There are studies out there that show that those who vote upon reentering stand a better chance and, and have a lower recidivism rates uh, than those who don't vote. Do Oregonians who are incarcerated want this right? And I understand they do hold mock elections at the Oregon State Penitentiary. Talk about that. They do. And so I mentioned that I'm formerly incarcerated. I wasn't incarcerated in Oregon. And so I I actually wasn't familiar with with the mock elections. But this is the great thing about having a wealth of knowledge on our policy team and at OJRC of those who are formerly incarcerated in Oregon, who mentioned that they have mock elections for the presidential elections, I think dating back to the 90s, maybe, uh, if I remember correctly. And, uh, And then they also hold elections for clubs as well. So they have these mock elections where I believe Anthony Pickens, uh, who's on on OJRC staff, I think he mentioned that there was about a 70% turnout rate for the mock election vote. And so this is, again, this is a vote that doesn't actually impact technically anything in terms of the elections. And yet you still have 70% of those who can vote voting um, in this mock election. And so you know, adults in custody are trying to get involved as much as they can. It's very hard to get them involved in the legislative process because the Department of Corrections logistically makes that difficult. But our formerly incarcerated population is really trying to lift up and, and really center the currently incarcerated individuals. And so our hope is to have uh, to turn out a lot of different testimony from those who are currently incarcerated. With 579, our coalition has support of over 40 civil rights, faith-based and community-based organizations, as well as dozens of currently and formerly incarcerated people. There is a desire for individuals who are incarcerated to vote. And uh, Oregon does allow formerly incarcerated people as they do release from prison. And uh, while they're on post-supervision, they can vote. So can you talk about the current laws? Sure. So th- that's correct. So the, the when you are released from prison in, in Oregon, you can vote. And uh, maybe I'll, I'll circle back around to the misinformation that makes that difficult to actually fulfill. But currently, the way it stands in Oregon is that if you are incarcerated pre-trial, so in county jail pre-trial, or if you are incarcerated in county jail on a misdemeanor conviction, so not a felony conviction, you are allowed to vote. Now, whether that's happening in practice, that's another area that we're trying to work on, which is implementation of voting in jail, which should be allowed, but I think is uh, woefully lacking. Now, if you're incarcerated in jail on a felony conviction, you are not allowed to vote. And then I think the distinctions get even more difficult when you get into the Oregon Youth Authority, who can and can't vote there. And so I think one of the ideas behind this bill is really it, it will simplify the question of who can vote in Oregon related to the criminal legal system. And the answer will be everyone. You never lose your right to vote. And I think this goes to the misinformation that, that's out there because news has been so nationalized that when you have Twitter being, for example, the distributing all this news from around the country, what happens is you have individuals who hear stories out of, let's say, Florida, which has significant problems right now with the way that they're implementing what the voters voted for, which was to allow those with felony convictions to vote and now are arresting people for doing so. And so when Oregonians hear that, formerly incarcerated Oregonians hear that, 
you know, it makes sense that they're they're scared about potentially voting. And so I think that that's one of the big concerns is that it's really hard with the nuances involved to say who can and can't vote. The messaging on it is is relatively nuanced. And if you're erring on the side of caution and being risk adverse, which, you you know, many of those of us who are reentering often do, then you're just going to say, I'm not going to vote. And I think that that's what's really another really important piece of this bill, which is that the messaging on this is going to be you never lose your right. You can always vote. All you have to do is register. And if you're already registered, just change your, your mailing address. That's hopefully a simpler message. You mentioned that people incarcerated will be able to vote in elections based on where they resided prior to their incarceration. So talk about that and talk about how this would work once passed. So once passed, I think the the simplest way to put it is that when when someone is registering, let's say that they are, you know, Coffee Creek is the intake um, facility, and then it's also the women's facility. And so the idea would be that First off, if we can implement better processes in the county jails, then people will already be registered to vote by the time they get to the Department of Corrections and to prison, and they can just update their mailing address. But that's a perfect world and something we're going to be working on in implementation. But if that doesn't get stood up as quickly as as we would like, then when someone comes into the Department of Corrections at Coffee Creek, for example, our hope is that they are provided access to, amongst all the other forms that they're provided access to, a voter registration form. And then they will list their last voluntary address as their voter registration address. And then they will list uh, Coffee Creek as their mailing address. Now, the one thing that we have to remember is that if someone gets moved from Coffee Creek to another facility, there will have to be access to a voter registration form to update the mailing address. But so that's really the the piece of the puzzle is that as long as the form's available, individuals can register and then also update their mailing address. But the real reason behind last voluntary address is to keep that connection to community. The only other option is to have individuals voting where they're incarcerated, which oftentimes, as I think a lot of your listeners know, is Eastern Oregon. So like outside the I-5 corridor, which is where the majority of the population lives, and individuals are being sent to Eastern Oregon to prison. And so the idea is, is that if they're voting with their last voluntary address, they're staying connected to that community. And that's likely where they're going to be going back to uh, when they're released. And so that's the, the connection that we'd like to keep. All right, let's move on to Senate Bill 520, which is the compassionate medical release. Can you talk about that bill? We've been here before. We, we have been here before on this as well. And now this is as simple as, as SB 579 is. Uh, SB 520 definitely has some more intricacies to it. So we are calling it, it's a compassionate medical release or early medical release. They're somewhat interchangeable. Uh, and this is again, Senator Dembro bringing the bill. We're working on the third year again, or third session. And uh, the bill, interestingly, just for, for those who are tracking where these bills are in the legislature, is in Senate Healthcare Committee, which is different. The previous two sessions, we've been in Judiciary Committee. And so we'll see what that brings for us. But we're excited to be educating um, additional lawmakers on this bill in, in that committee. So we know that Oregon has a growing population of aging adults who are in custody, and they struggle with basic daily activities. So eating, drinking, dressing, walking, bathing themselves is difficult due to poor health. And Oregon has already concluded that we don't need to keep incarcerating these individuals, right? We have a current compassionate release process. The issue is, is that the process doesn't work. So the current process is opaque and confusing. Timelines are too drawn out. The method of review is, isn't medically informed, right? It's the Board of Parole making medical decisions, and they don't have any medical professionals on the Board of Parole. And 
what we have heard anecdotally and what we've seen in the numbers is that most eligible people just fail to, to navigate it. It's just not possible. And we've actually seen that more individuals have died awaiting compassionate release, their application for compassionate release than have actually been released in the past, I believe, 10 years or so, um, which just speaks to the, the just dysfunction of the current system. And so our hope is that people can be safely and humanely released uh, to get the care that they need at home with loved ones uh, instead of remaining in prison. I mean, I think that's the that's the overarching goal of the bill. To still it down to what it actually does, uh, it'll create an independent medical review committee that'll make recommendations to the Board of Parole or the sentencing court solely and objectively from a medical and public health perspective. And so if the committee recommends release, the sentencing court or the Board of Parole can either affirm or deny release. And there's some additional pieces to that, but it's a presumptive release, right? So the presumption is that if, if this medical release advisory committee, also known as MRAC, recommends release, then the border parole or the sentencing court really do have to show that there's some public safety reason to not release an individual and they have a standard that they need to meet. And so that's really the the crux of what the bill does. And it's again, it's the real idea is to have medical professionals making medical decisions and analysis and recommendations, which seems logical, at least to me. And so we know that prisons are not set up to provide a dignified or peaceful environment for someone uh, who's in the end stages of life, despite DOCs and and the hospice volunteers' uh, best efforts to support them. And so we know, and we've heard from individuals, that they would be better off at home with their families than in prison. And I think that's really the goal. And, and I, I do want to share one quote that I've heard from, I mentioned Anthony Pickens when talking about SB 579. And just a quote, he he was incarcerated in Oregon and he was a hospice volunteer. And I just wanted to, if I can, share one quote. The quote is, one of the guys that I was on vigil with, he couldn't talk, he couldn't walk, he couldn't do anything on his own. So us hospice volunteers would clean him up, change his adult diapers, and we would wheel him into the shower. The most he could do during any given time was moan. And I think that this really sums up some of the population that are currently incarcerated that really should not be incarcerated. And we have to go back to having some compassion. And I think we took a step forward on this with a prison visit to Oregon State Penitentiary that we organized with Senator Dembro's office to get legislators to go into Oregon State Penitentiary and see the infirmary and and talk with hospice volunteers. And I think it had a profound effect I think we were able to have Kyle Hedquist, who's another one of our staff members on our policy team, who actually founded or was there at the founding of the hospice volunteers program at Oregon State Penitentiary. He was incarcerated at that time and was a volunteer. And so he was able to really speak to how it has evolved and all of the shortcomings um, of it. And I think one of the big takeaways was seeing walkers and wheelchairs just outside of every single cell you know, in the infirmary and, and towards the hospice unit. So, you know, our hope is to really raise awareness about this population and and hopefully pass the bill this session. The bill does come with a, a large fiscal, but it also comes with a large savings. And the issue in Oregon is oftentimes the fiscal that gets presented to lawmakers doesn't include the savings aspect of it. And so it's on the advocates to make sure that legislators, while they see a big fiscal, they also see that there's going to be savings on this. Senator Dembro was on a... Uh, a task force for corrections health. And they made a lot of recommendations. And one of the recommendations was to implement this new compassionate release uh, process, and then to use those savings to help fund some of the other recommendations. And so I think that's really where we can see some some significant savings. 
A third bill that you're working on is justice for survivor defendants, and this one does not have a bill attached to it yet. Correct. It doesn't have a bill number. Uh, it has a what's called an LC or legislative concept number uh, three nine one eight, um, and it should have a bill number uh, in the next uh, few weeks, sometime before the middle of February or late February. So this bill is again another one that we're bringing back. We didn't bring it in twenty twenty two. Uh, but we did introduce it in 2021, and then Representative uh, Anna Williams uh, championed the bill. This time around this session, uh, Senator Campos is going to be uh, introducing the bill, and we've been working with with her on that. And so, again, this bill is you know trying to help a specific population. We know numerous studies going back many years have observed high rates of victimization among female criminal defendants and linked domestic abuse in their lives to the commission of their crimes. That used to be called, you know, battered women syndrome, and it's evolved into more understanding of what the actual connection is and what's going on. And so people in abusive relationships may be involved in crimes for a variety of reasons. Uh, They may be threatened or coerced by their abuser, or they may be trying to protect themselves or their children from the abuser. They may be trying to fight back or escape their partner, or they may be blamed for their abuser's actions, which we've we've seen happen. And so organs failing this group, uh, we know that, and that's why we brought in 21, and that's why we're going to bring it back this session. And we call them survivor defendants. Uh, They are survivors. They are also defendants. And we have to be able to hold those two truths. Currently, our sentencing laws do not adequately consider the histories of victimization for these individuals or the role that domestic violence has played in the commission of their crimes to make a fair assessment of their culpability. And so oftentimes we see, and this is in large part due to Measure 11, our mandatory minimum laws in Oregon, some of the worst in the country, by the way, it's another conversation. They are often sentenced to excessive terms of incarceration that are grossly disproportionate to their role and intent in the criminalized activity. And then we see just further victimization because they're at a high risk of further trauma in prison. And so essentially what this bill does, it requires the courts to consider evidence of domestic violence when they are sentencing someone. So the court will have discretion to impose a lesser sentence on a survivor defendant when the presumptive or mandatory sentence, so generally measure 11 sentence, would be too harsh under the circumstances. And then also addressing kind of that the re-traumatization and further trauma in prison, the bill would also create a task force to make recommendations regarding programs and services that are needed in Department of Corrections to make sure that survivors leave prison healthy and safely and prevent further re-traumatization of those incarcerated individuals, survivors in prison. So that's kind of the crux of the bill. You know, it can really even be distilled down further into providing a judge discretion. When we hear opposition around this bill, oftentimes, anytime you give judges more discretion and prosecutors less discretion, we can oftentimes guess that there's going to be some opposition from the district attorneys. You know, I think oftentimes we hear district attorneys say that they already consider this in plea bargaining, and they already consider this in their charging decisions and in making their sentencing recommendations. I think that we've heard from numerous survivors who've been incarcerated that it was not taken into account and that we are not willing to just take the district attorneys at their word because it can also change from district attorney to district attorney. It could change from case to case. It allows the ability to bring in bias by the district attorneys, implicit or explicit bias. And so it's not okay for us just to rely on district attorneys to, you know, to do the right thing in this case. And so we really do want to provide the court with the option to depart out of a disproportionate sentence. And this is one reason we're saying justice for all, all survivors, right? Because whether you're a defendant or not, you're also a survivor. You've been subjected to an abusive relationship. And 
it's important that we be able to lift up this population and make sure that they're getting the the treatment and the attention that, that they deserve and not allow the system to just continue to over-incarcerate. And what about those who have been convicted and are serving time? Yeah, so there is there is a mechanism that would allow for those who didn't have an opportunity to present evidence of the domestic violence to petition for review. The concern that we always have is if we're going to make a, a fix going forward, we also want to provide a, an avenue for individuals who weren't able to avail themselves of this new law to go back and ask the court to consider this. And so it's similar criteria but it is petitioning the court to essentially go back and review the the case. And I understand an Oregon Justice Resource Center attorney that the woman, especially in Coffee Creek, Oregon's only women's prison, they began telling her their stories. Whether it made a difference or not, they wanted someone to hear why they ended up committing a crime. So can you talk about that and talk about some of the statistics, especially with the women incarcerated in Coffee Creek? There's always a a concern about re-traumatization, right? If someone telling their story and whether uh, that results in further trauma. But I think what we found, our Women's Justice Project, which is a project uh, within the the Oregon Justice Resource Center led by Julia Yoshimoto, who's the uh, attorney and director, she definitely had uh, many individuals share their stories with her about being survivor defendants. And that's where this bill comes out of. This bill comes out of a survey, her story survey, that surveyed more than 140 women uh, who were incarcerated at Coffee Creek. And it took place in 2017 to 2018 and discovered that 65% of the women in a relationship at the time of arrest reported experiencing abuse in their relationship. 60% reported physical violence, 62% reported threats of harm, and 79% reported verbal abuse. We also found that 44% of the women in a relationship at the time of arrest said the relationship contributed to their conviction. And again, 44% of the women in a relationship at the time of the arrest said they were afraid of their partner. And I think that, you know, the data bears out what Julia has has heard anecdotally from mostly women, because that's the population that she's working with, that this is a significant issue and it's it's something that needs to be addressed. And one of the reasons that we continue to push for it. Also, one of the reasons that we on this bill have said that we are keeping Measure 11 in, in terms of we are trying to, with bills, trying to not complicate this, but Measure 10 and Measure 11 work together to force essentially two-thirds majority vote in both chambers to pass a bill that, let's just say, impacts Measure 11. Pierce's Measure 11 is another way to put it, but that that involves Measure 11 and reducing, because the judges have the ability to depart out of a Measure 11 sentence, it's considered impacting Measure 11. So this bill will require a two-thirds vote in both chambers to pass. And I think that oftentimes that causes people to remove Measure 11, people serving Measure 11 sentences from their bills which was the intent of Measure 10 and Measure 11 back in 94, 95. But because of Julia's advocacy and work with this population, OJRC knows that we absolutely need to keep the Measure 11 piece in there. And so we know it's an uphill battle, but we also know that it is values-wise, it is absolutely the right decision to keep it in. And how can people get involved? Yeah, there'll definitely be more information on our website coming up. And so checking in on our website, OJRC.info, and following us at Twitter and Instagram at OJRCenter, and then on Facebook, because we're going to be creating a separate website landing page for this bill that'll provide a lot of information. And so we're really looking forward to that. And so checking in on social media and our website for when that comes out, there'll also be signing up for our 
newsletter and just any email blasts that we send out to keep updated on it. And so then what we'll be doing is using those tools and that website to really keep individuals who want to be involved updated on what's going on, and then to provide uh, information on when public hearings are, are scheduled and work sessions are scheduled and how they can contact our legislators. And they can actually track the bill through OregonLegislature.gov. And our legislators really need to hear from us on these issues. So Zach, what other bills or legislation are in the works right now that OGRC is following? I'll cover two other bills and then just one other caveat, which is, I call it a, another bill, but it's really just a, a task of ours to fight off uh, what I call bad bills, but um, we have HB 2327, uh, so House Bill 2327, which is establishing a minimum age of prosecution. Oregon currently has no legal minimum age at which a child uh, may be prosecuted. And so HB 2327 would establish a minimum age of prosecution of 12 and bring Oregon in line with 24 other states that have established a minimum age at which youth can be prosecuted. And so we believe that we have to protect our children against the harms of the juvenile justice involvement and to allow them to access supportive services and resources. And so that's kind of two parts of the bill. It sets a minimum age and also provides funding for the, the children that previously could have been prosecuted but are not going to be prosecuted by having a, a minimum age. And I think that OJRC absolutely believes that the age should be 14. But we are with the coalition on this bill, and we have been very clear that if we're going to the age of 12, there should be no carve-outs, meaning it shouldn't be a minimum age of 12 unless you're charged with and then a list of crimes being carve-outs. And so we've been very clear about that. And, and so we'll see where you know what happens with this bill, but we are supportive of it. We're in a coalition it's an interesting coalition, a great coalition. The Oregon Juvenile Department Directors Association, ACLU Oregon, Oregon Criminal Defense Lawyers Association, Disability Rights Oregon, and Youth Rights and Justice. So it's a really a, a broad spectrum group that, that is in support of this bill. And um, I think opposition-wise, you probably won't be surprised to hear that the district attorneys have expressed concerns with setting a minimum age for prosecution. And yet, I hope to many that it is a pretty reasonable statement that we do not want to incarcerate children. We do not want to prosecute children. There is an inherent, I think, undercurrent in the U.S. that the way to address wrongs is to punish, is to set an example. And especially with this population of children who are under 12, there are better systems and better ways to hold individuals, children accountable than to prosecute and bring them into the juvenile justice system. And I think that it's really, we're really happy with, you know, our partners at the Oregon Juvenile Department Directors Association see this and want to provide services outside of prosecution uh, for this population. I think the other one I would highlight is we don't have a bill number yet for it as well. It's LC-964, and we're calling it Expedited Judicial Review for Conditions of Confinement Cases. And so the concept for this bill was originally discussed in the recommendation section of OJRC's report, uh, ODOC, An Agency in Crisis, which was put together by our investigative researcher, Justin Lowe. And so just for listeners, the report and other reports, our other reports can be found at ojrc.info slash reports, R-E-P-O-R-T-S. And so this bill came out of a recommendation that Justin had put in there. And so when a person is in custody of ODOC and is subject to excessive or inappropriate punishment that may violate their constitutional rights, there's not currently an opportunity to contest that action in a meaningful or efficient way. The way to address that is to file a lawsuit. 
that takes years to litigate. And so adults in custody cannot petition state courts to review disciplinary orders imposed by ODOC and other review options are inadequate, right? So grievance options, filing a federal lawsuit, a potential habeas suit, these are all difficult and timely and take up a ton of time to actually get resolved. And so what this bill does is it will allow individuals to access state courts for an expedited process of judicial review. And so the idea behind here is really to say if if the Department of Corrections is going to hold someone in what's called choose whatever name you want from, from ODOC, from the Department of Corrections, solitary confinement, restrictive housing, special housing, the name changes a lot, but all of the above. If a disciplinary order requires someone to spend more than 15 consecutive days in special housing, restrictive housing, or solitary confinement, then the adult in custody can, under this bill, file a petition for review of that order. And so that's really the the key for us is to allow for individuals to actually have meaningful review so that they're not if they get 120 days in solitary confinement and they they want to file a lawsuit, they're out of solitary confinement before the, really the complaint's even filed. Um, and so here, the idea is that if someone's getting 120 days in solitary confinement, they can actually petition the court for review of that disciplinary action. So trying to hold DOC accountable for their disciplinary orders and actions that they're taking. I think the, the other thing is is just to, to flag for, for everyone that you know, one thing that we do, and depending on capacity, it, it varies in how effective we are, I am at this, which is to identify bills that we believe will harm efforts to reform the criminal legal system. So there are many, over 4,000 bills were filed this past session, and they're not all criminal legal system related bills, but there are many bills that are filed and introduced that we believe do more harm than good uh, for the criminal legal system. And so one of our responsibilities is to connect with partners, community partners, identifying those bills, educating legislators on or advocating against those bills, checking in on our website. You will start seeing when we do put out social media posts on bills that we believe the community should take notice of and potentially testify against. I've been speaking with Zach Winston, Policy Director with Oregon Justice Resource Center. Thank you so much, Zach. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you to our engineer and thank you for listening.